Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Uh, Guten Morgan. Uh, welcome to 3CR. You're listening to Green Enough Radio. It's Friday morning. Yeah, with Jacob and Zane on the line um, today. And uh, we've got uh, Michael just as a as a quiet sort of sit-in here from from in your face. No, no. He, it's, I, uh, hey, everyone. <laughs> I didn't know there was going to be a microphone on. Except <laughs> I'm not sure if he, um, you could hear that because I don't, there's not a mic directed to his face. <laughs> yeah. No, Michael's just keeping us company here. Yeah, it's, Early in the morning. Yeah. All right. So um, we have a well, we have a pretty good program lined up um, today. We have two guests. Um, so at 7:45 a.m. we'll be interviewing Tim, um, who's currently involved in this action at Newcastle. Um, he also has probably a wealth of experience in the environmental movement in Newcastle. And um, we all, then we have um, Martina, who is uh, so, uh, a social ho- community housing tenant who's um, campaigning for public housing. Um, and we'll be um, talking about, you know, this whole conflict, um, this, you know, what the Dan Rangers is doing with the with the sell-offs of public housing by turning them into social housing you know, and why social housing isn't sufficient and what we need is public housing. Mm. And as usual, we should acknowledge that we're coming at you from 3CR Studios in Smith Street, which is built on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And, yeah, sovereignty was never ceded, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and future, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Mm. So, um, I guess in terms of the latest news um, we can discuss, um, Green Left Weekly is on a two-week issue, but so we'll be covering some articles that we did not cover last week. Um, but I guess the first news story, um, first big kind of thing I would like to, you know, start off the show is actually talking about what's happening in the British elections. Um, because for listeners that, um, will probably know, but next week is when the election, the vote will actually start. Um, and so previously there's just been all of this campaigning happening. Um, and what is interesting is, um, at the start, of, you know, when the election was called by Theresa May, it was an early general election that was called, um, there was this expectation that Labor under Jeremy Corbyn would just get completely wiped out because they were actually doing very poorly in the polls um, prior to the general election being called. The uh, self-destruct thesis. Yes, um, basically the thesis that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn is too radical, um, therefore he's unelectable. We need to get a, a sensible kind of centrist candidate like Tony Blair who supports war, um, privatisation. We can't have anyone who supports radical measures such as nationalising the railways, um, giving free t- t- tuition to um, students, and um, basically oh, and increasing the minimum wage. But what's very striking is um, 
the in the recent polls, um, and of course with um, this poll data, there is a margin of error, so we do not know. They're not going to be. It's not going to be a hundred percent accurate measure of what is going to happen on the day. Um, but um, it says here that um, the Conservatives are now at forty-four percent approval rate um, in terms of voting intention, and Labor have um, creeped up to thirty-six percent. Um, which is quite significant um, because gradually through the election process they've been narrowing the gap. And also the Liberal Democrats are now at 7%. UKIP has 5%. Somehow they've managed to get an increased percentage from last week, 1%. And the Greens are at 1%. So Where are you getting those numbers? This is from the panel base. Um, it's from Britain Elects. It's okay. it, usually these are the polls that people refer to when they're talking about how you know Labor's doing badly in the polls. Because you were just talking about forty-four to thirty-six, but I saw a poll last night saying that the the gap had narrowed to three points. So yep. that was the closest poll that's coming out. Well, there, there's different there's different polls, and this is just okay. one example of a different yeah, yeah, poll. Okay. So, um, but this was the one that people keep referring to when you know. So I think it was important to use this one as a right. main source because whenever people are talking about, oh yes, look, Labor's unelectable. Look at this poll. This is the one that they are usually talking about. Right. If only had some ex- expertise in statistics, and I'd be able to explain. But I'm just using. Mm. So that's a pretty authoritative one. Yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, obviously, you know, there's different polls that measure different kind of uh, one of the things that's probably not considered when it comes to analyzing these polls is the whole question of people who don't vote because apparently i think they um these polls only measure who actually who the people that the demographic that usually does vote and so there's a very good possibility that corbyn could be rallying up a lot of people who don't normally vote especially young people Mm. um and i think yeah what what is quite striking significant there's been this sort of media smear against um, Corbyn from the kind of centre liberal left press um, coming from New Statesman and The Guardian. And what I find interesting is, you know, even The Guardian and New Statesman are kind of like, oh, they're making state, um, they write articles getting released, they're saying, oh yes, I can't, we can't believe Corbyn is, you know, getting close to winning or is doing so well. Like, and it's a, it's just they're kind of like almost admitting they're wrong, but not, not, not actually admitting fully. And I think what's, um, what's interesting, I think there's going to be two possible scenarios that are going to pop up based on this, um, polls. And that's either that Labour wins, which would be the win-win situation, or that Labour, um, loses, but come very close. Um, and it's looking like those are the two possible outcomes. There's no, the outcome that Labor will just lose disastrously looks like it's out of the question at this point, and it's looking very likely that the Tories won't even form majority government. They will only form a minority government. Mm. Uh, unless that is that in the final week of the campaign, a bombshell about Jeremy Corbyn gets dropped, and I saw something during the rounds on social media that was pretty incriminating. Yeah. Apparently, Jer- Jeremy Corbyn had curry with Skeletor <laughs> in uh, the early 90s. The Skeletor. <laughs> <laughs> I think the funniest one was um, uh, that Jeremy Corbyn, there was this smear made against Jeremy Corbyn back when he was first elected, and it was quite funny because basically I think it was claiming that he um, that he used... I think he that he forgot um that he didn't he underreported his taxes 
that was his, or over-reported that his taxes. Actually, I think it was over-reported, and he over-reported his taxes. Like, he declared um, more income than what he'd actually was apparently supposed to be declaring. That was a bizarre kind of thing, especially in the fact that, you know, most politicians, the biggest scandals is that they're avoiding millions of dollars in tax or have ties to some corporation mm. or they're using massive amounts of entitlements as an MP, whereas, you know, Corbyn, the only thing expensive... He did this thing that would mean he paid more tax than he had to. Yeah. Ooh, what a scandal. Yeah, and then there was a one where his only expense has been, you know a printer cartridge as an MP, like, that he, when he went over his, um, his allowed expenditure as a, as an MP. Um, so yeah, that's, um, that's what's happening in the British elections. We will hopefully, I think, um, in, once the election's over, we'll hopefully have an interview, um, with someone who, probably a bit more of an expert on the topic or a bit more informed. Um, he will go and would go into detail and in discussing the implications that right. you know this has for the left, depending on which result happens next Saturday. Mm. Um, but it should be we should be in for some quite exciting times. Mm. Who are we going to speak to about? Have we got well, someone lined up yet? Or? Well we could um, there is potentially we could uh, find someone in Britain to talk um, to talk about the elections or we could talk to one of the Green Left Weekly editors mm. about the election. So there's lo- there's lots of people we could potentially source for this question. Much excitement. Bring popcorn. Uh, it is ten past seven. It's Friday morning. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. Just going to chuck on a quick announcement. Our annual Radiothon is almost here and in 2017 3CR is Radio for Change. From June the 5th to the 18th we're asking you to help us stay on air by making a generous donation. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au 3CR Radio for Change. Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate with Rod Quantock is on again. Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall. MC extraordinaire Rod Quantock will host two teams of comedians debating whether fake news is real news. Comedians include Sean Bedlam, Gabe Hogan, Shirley Hood, Kirsty Mack, Morvan Smith and Pauline Fartson, Hellchild. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate. Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall. Corner Sydney Road and Dawson Street, Brunswick. Doors open at 6.30pm. For bookings, go to trybooking.com forward slash Q-A-E-N or call 9639-8622. That's 9639-8622, a 3CR supporter. Alrighty, welcome back. Uh, this is... Green Left Weekly Radio, it's uh, quarter past seven, seven sixteen to be precise, Friday the 2nd of June, and you're tuned to 3CR 855 on your AM dial, dial, dial. Hmm. 
Okay, so um, I guess I have an article, I have a few articles to talk about from Green Left Weekly. Some of this might be a bit you know, old news, but some of it is actually still timelessly relevant, especially this article on, you know, this article written by Mary Ellen Harrod about the, the new drug plan by the, um, the coalition government, um, which is coming under the new federal budget. And, you know, she writes here that, you know, the recent federal budget announced a terrible new policy, you know, drug testing, you know, which basically means that, you know, 5,000 new recipients of youth allowance or new start um, will be tested for, you know, cannabis, meth and MDMA. And, of course, she writes here that, you know, Turnbull, you know, has defended the policy as aimed at stabilising the lives of people with alcohol and drug abuse problems by encouraging them to participate in treatment as part of their job plan. At the same time, people with diagnosed substance abuse disorders have been excluded from disability benefits. And, of course, you know, Mary, you know, it completely outraged at this, you know, she kind of, you know, says, you know, it's hard to know where to start in critiquing, you know, this breathtaking, hypocritical and misguided policy. And, you know, what writes here that, you know, it's um, it's clear that the aim is not to stabilise lives and encourage people to participate in treatment. If the Turnbull government generally, believe, generally wanted to help people into treatment, it would direct that um, what will undoubtedly be the very hot costs of this program towards treatment. Um, because, you know, basically this, this is, this welfare measure by the government is, you know, it's a kind of punitive measure that, you know, they're, fun, um, where they're, you know, they're, they're trying to, you know, threaten people as opposed to, you know, treating and treating people who, who, um, use drugs as, you know, criminals as opposed to, you know, treating them as like, you know, as a medical problem, you know, needs to be treated, you know, with proper support. And of course, the reality, and she writes here, you know, the reality is for people who use drugs is that it's hard to get into treatment. They are only about half of the needed places. People who live in the country or the outer sub, or the outer suburban area, sole fathers or people who need culturally or age appropriate service are probably right out of luck. And of course, there are a lot of people out there, you know, working hard to make treatment systems better and more evidence-based, but they have a long way to go. If helping um, people other than government MPs in marginal seats was the aim, then the selection of substance to be tested is pretty odd. Um, you know, the National um, House Drug Survey, the best population level measure of both le- legal and legal drug use, affirmed once again that alcohol is alcohol use is by far the biggest issue facing Australia, with nearly 30% of the population engaged in risky um, drinking. And, you know, a very high proportion of people who use drugs to be tested use them occasionally and not in a way that is problematic. People who do use um, drugs and alcohol in a problematic way often have complex lives. Increasing the stigma and marginalisation they experience is an abuse of human rights. And, of course, you know, she concludes here that, you know, you know, about, you know, talking about, you know, the stigma that drug users face and, you know, um, and the policy really is, um, will make people's lives worse. It will push people into using riskier substances to avoid detection. It will push people to despair. How can Turnbull describe this as a policy based on love and sleep at night? And so that's the kind of concluding kind of point of the article, you know, condemning, you know, this sort of drug plan that of, uh, by the Turnbull federal government has been, you know, just increasing stigmatisation and not actually addressing kind of like the root causes mm. of drug abuse in our society. Uh, whilst I do mainly have um, 3CR 
on my radio. I do occasionally listen to Triple J, and uh, this one afternoon I was listening to uh, the Hack Program on Triple J. There was a really good speaker on this issue. Uh, they spoke about the um, the example of decriminalisation in Portugal, and they said Portugal took all of the money that they were spending on policing and putting people in jail and all that sort of rubbish, and they put all of that into treatment uh, and and they decriminalised drugs, and overnight there was a halving in the uh, amount of people addicted to heroin uh, and lots of, you know, all sorts of addictive drugs in Portugal use decreased uh, as the drugs were decriminalised and there was more resources put into treatment. And the other thing he said is the best, the most productive way to to look at tackling uh, addiction is to realise that the opposite of addiction is connection. So people are using drugs as an escape from being disconnected from society as a way of dealing with uh, trauma or, or other issues that they have. So if you have permanently unemployed people who are stigmatised, who are constantly told that they're bludgers or whatever, that would be prime kind of candidates for the sort of people who might try and escape from that crappy feeling by having some uh, recreational drugs and perhaps becoming dependent. So, yeah, I, I really liked that uh, that quote, the opposite of addiction is connection. Mm. And, um, it got, it got, and it's sort of like one of the things, one of the more cynical elements I would say about this policy is it's kind of like um, a way for the Liberal government to kind of drum up, um, you know, votes because, you know, there's a lot of, you know, stigma thrown towards um, people who use drugs and, you know, and there's some people with, you know, there's a number of people who, you know, have this mistaken belief that, you know, the biggest problems in society are people that use drugs and you kind of see this kind of reinforced in kind of like the mainstream media where they go on about this ice epidemic. Um, you know, ice is actually a terrible drug, but it's actually the evidence from experts actually says that, you know, this whole idea of this ice epidemic is actually kind of like a bit of an elaborate function and, you know, it's actually has, it doesn't actually have any co- correlation with what the actual reality of, you know, mm. what the rate of ice usage is and it's not this terrible academic that is, you know, destroying communities and, and so on, but, you know, the government is trying to, you know, cave into this sort of media fear um, about drug users and, you know, as, as a, like a cynical way of, you know, winning votes. Mm. Kind of like the Apex Gang. And or mm. refugees and kind of like... Very Weapons sim- of mass destruction in Iraq mm. and the, the crisis in the Northern Territory that that sort of justified the Northern Territory intervention. Well, that gives me a kind of good segue into this next article. Um, it's an article about a fictional crisis that we need to address. No, this is actually a very real crisis um, related to Aboriginal um, people, and this is one of the front-page articles of the latest Green Left Weekly, and this is an article written by um, Alex Bainbridge, um, you know, cu- posing the question, why are they still stealing Aboriginal babies? Um, he opens the article with, you know, 20 years after the original Bringing Them Home report was released, Aboriginal children are still being taken from their parents in even greater numbers than before. Commenting on the impact of the Bringing Them Home, which documented evidence about the stolen generations of Aboriginal children, Murray Elder told Greenle- Sam Watson told Greenleft Weekly that it was beyond dispute that Aboriginal children were removed in significant numbers. Every single fa- 
Aboriginal family was affected, dating back to the first years of uh, European invasion. Although commissioned by the Port Keating government, the report was not released until 1997 after the election of John Howard as Prime Minister. The Howard government totally rejected the report and its recommendations. Infamously, you know, Howard also refused to apologise to the stolen generations. However, you know, there was, you know, later on, listeners probably know there was a dramatic kind of development in after after the end of John Howard in which um newly elected prime minister in 2018 Kevin Rudd led many to be, um with his apology led many to believe that a new page had been turned you know that and you know he stated you know back then he stated that you know this parliament resolves that the injustices of the past must never never happen again but far from never happening again, the situation is actually, you know, when we look at it today, it's now, as Alex Bainbridge writes here, it's now worse. Um, the professor of Indigenous research, Larissa Ben-Rent, pointed out that last year that the statistics from the year before the apology speech from June 2007 showed that 9,070 Indigenous children were in out-of-home care. In June 2015, that number had risen to 15,455. The 2007 figures were themselves a dramatic increase of on the 2785 Indigenous children removed from their families at the time of the bringing them home. Even by August 2009, almost two years after Rudd's apology, the Daily Telegraph could report that some 4,300 Aboriginal children were taken from their parents that year in New South Wales alone. This number is greater, the paper said, than the numbers said to have been removed in the 1920s and 1930s. And, of course, there's been kind of like, you know, there's, you know, the... um, you know, the Bringing Them Home report, you know, spoke openly about the removal of Aboriginal children as a policy of genocide. And of course, you know, describing that, you know, when a child was forcibly moved, that child's entire community lost, often permanently, its chance to perpetrate itself in the, in that child. The inquiry includes, include that the prime, that a primary objective of forcible removals and the reason they amount to was genocide. But I think one, I think one of the, um, one of the things is, you know, despite, you know, the end, as this article kind of suggests, despite the end, you know, the fact that the stolen generations, it's act, the stolen generations actually still continues. Um, but of course, the reasons, you know, back then in that history, the stolen generations are all quite openly racist about, you know, taking away Aboriginal children from their families. But these days, it's kind of like a much more insidious. It's done kind of through the, you know, the kind of complicated child protection bureaucracy where they actually remove Aboriginal children on the basis that, you know, this Aboriginal parent is not a suitable parent and then they go put them in, you know, a white family or something. And But, you know, it's really... The story hasn't really changed. It's still kind of like the, you know, processes of genocide... And of course, there's been, you know, a lot more, I guess, um, there has been right quite recently in terms of like, you know, struggles against this. There has been a lot more attention paid to this issue as Alex writes, you know, since, you know, with the January 2014 formation of Grandmothers Against Removals. And of course, you know, in September 2014, the Victorian government, you know, released a report that found the rate of Aboriginal child removal in Victoria exceeds that of at any time since white settlement. Um, and of course, but, um, you know, reversing, you know, this situation, you know, as Alex Brainbridge concludes here, you know, we have to reverse this situation and it's, you know, the key to ending the ongoing trauma of the forced removals of Aboriginal children from their families. Hmm. I think another, um, 
another part of that report into the stolen generations looks at uh, trying to place um, in in situations where there is a removal that it's highly preferable to try and place those kids with a family member of mm. the uh, sort of extended family of the people that the child's being removed from. I think that's another aspect. Not only is the rate of removals at an all-time high, but there's also little to no effort to try and place those children with uh, family members so that they can maintain a connection mm. to, their, to their family uh, group. Mm. Yeah. Um, might play a quick announcement and then move on to this other news story I've got to share. Certainly. I'm Tara Sultana and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much. wondering how to pay your donation, you can pay online by going to 3cr.org.au or call us on 94198377. You can also visit us in person at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy and pay by cash, cheque or FTPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR, Radio for Change. support for a 3CR program during Radiothon? Well, you can call us on 9419 8377 or visit our website 3cr.org.au. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you would like your donation to go to. And thank you for being part of 3CR's Radiothon. Okay, you're back. We're back on Green Left Weekly Radio on 855 AM on with Jacob and Zane. I guess now we are just talking about um, how, you know, the forced removals of, you know, Aboriginal stu- um, children still continues. Um, but now the next um, thing I'd like to discuss is kind of like some recent developments that have been happening in U.S. politics. I mean, yes, Donald Trump is still the president of the United States, if, if we haven't forgotten yet. And um, there's been a more of a kind of crazy thing that's kind of happened where U.S. President Donald Trump has just announced yesterday or today, probably, yeah, I think in, in terms of the time zone differences, probably today because first Friday in Australia is Thursday for the United, um, United States. Are we talking about the, the Cobb Fifi announcement? 
I think, yeah, yes, where he basically, um, he's announced plans, um, you know, to pull the country out of the landmark 2015 Paris climate accord. Oh, right, that thing, yeah. And um, he states here that, you know, in order to fulfill my solemn duty to protect America and its citizens, the United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. Um, But of course, you know, but Trump added that the US and the United States would begin negotiations to re-enter either the Paris Accord or on new transition on terms that are fair to the United States, its businesses, its workers, its people, its taxpayers. A bit of a translation of that statement. I think it's more fair to businesses, bad for everyone else. Mm. And I think because one of the interesting things is, you know, the thing about the Paris Climate Accord is actually been kind of criticised by the more radical elements of the environment movement as actually not being particularly Mm. strong enough. But, of course, a a government pulling out of it probably means that they probably just want to participate in, you know, more unsustainable, you know... Um, um, you know, environment trashing business as usual. Yeah. Mm. And of course, um, in the article it writes here that, you know, the Paris, Paris Accord forged by nearly 200 countries in 2015 is viewed as the best chance to limit global warming by cutting emissions of carbon dioxide and other gases from burning fossil fuel. It aims to limit the increase in global average temperature to well below two degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels. The breaking point that climate science scientists say is the tipping point to catastrophic and irreversible climate change. Um, And of course, you know, um, in response, um, Bernie Sanders, who um, criticised Trump's decision as an abduction of, you know, American leadership and an international disgrace, and um, Ersh Pierkar, president of Friends of the Earth, also blamed Trump for for turning the fate of the planet into a reality TV show. Mm. And of course... um, you know, it, it, and you know, form, um, but even, um, but one of the things I think is, you know, the, the, the announcement kind of came after months of internal debate within the Trump administration. Trump had caught, called global warming a hoax during his election campaign and vowed to cancel the Paris deal within 100 days of becoming president as part of an effort to, you know, bolster US oil and coal industries. And, you know, of course, one of the more interesting kind of elements of that is, you know, since taking office, you know, Trump has come under pressure from some advisors, close U.S. allies, corporate CEOs, Democrats, and some Republicans to keep the United States in the accord. And I think because the reality is, you know, I think, you know, the reality with that is, you know, the basically, you know, it's more of a loony kind of thing amongst, you know, the kind of top end of town to actually deny that climate change actually exists. But, of course, for those who actually do accept climate change exists amongst businesses, they're probably not going to participate in any meaningful action anyway. Um, and so what it's sort of interesting that, you know, that, you know, Trump is now is facing this kind of pressure, but at the same time, he's not really facing much pressure from the more kind of radical kind of elements from the environment movement. And so since then, there has, there has actually been some, a lot of climate rallies um, organised in response to the election of Donald Trump. And so there is some active resistance happening in the United States, you know, to pressure the United States, you know, to adopt, you know, much more sustainable measures. But, of course, ever since Trump got elected, what's been happening is he's been um, he's been talking about, you know, putting, um, re-implementing the Keystone Pipeline, um, and they're still continuing to build on standing 
looking to build like a a coal plant. Well, I think something on Standing Rock. Yeah, oil pipeline. Oil pipeline, yes, that's correct. And, um, and of course, you know, Trump's decision also comes as a significant foreign policy breakup with nearly other, every other nation on earth as the only two country, two other countries that aren't supporting the deal are Nigeria and Syria. And it also, um, indicates a major reversal of environmental policies under Obama, who helped broke the cord. Under the, the pact, the United States committed to reducing its greenhouse gas emissions by 26 to 28% from 2000 level, 2005 levels by 2025. And of course, scientists in response suggested that US's withdrawal could result in releasing up to 3 billion tonnes of additional carbon dioxide into the air, enough to melt ice sheets faster, raise seas higher and tighter, trigger more extreme weather. And of course, you know, there are some US states, including California, Washington and New York, have vowed to continue to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and continue engaging in inter- international grit client agreement process. And, you know, the U- the European Union and China, two of the world's major players, have pledged to continue the um, implement of the agreement despite the US retreat. Um, so that that's um, basically kind of, so basically that's the gist of the story. Um, the, the, under the Donald Trump administration, they're basically you know attempting to withdraw from the Paris client talk, which is you know kind of like a real kind of reflection of how you know where um, where kind of like politics is at for the client um, in terms of responding to client change. And yeah, it's always kind of depressing to talk about these kind of stories because you know the reality is. We aren't making the progress that we actually need right now, and it seems like we're going. It seems like for a lot of governments across the world, we're going backwards, mm. and we're just going to be continuing to kill the planet more until there's nothing left. Yeah, it's like the the old saying: socialism or barbarism. We're looking increasingly like we're heading for a future of barbarism mm. in a collapsing climate world with rising sea levels, severe droughts, and a bunch of nasty stuff. Not very good, but uh, I think we owe it to future generations to keep plugging away and trying to kickstart the revolution which addresses climate change uh, amongst other Mm. other issues, homophobia, sexism, smash the patriarchy. Mm. But I think um, in positive news, um, I'd like to talk about this positive news article from uh, happening in Newcastle. That's what we need. Um, so news. basically, um, this is an article written by Zebedee Parks um, that you know Newcastle students force uni to cut ties with broad spectrum. Um, Newcastle students against attention um, culture jammed the, um, the Newcastle's brand, rebranding launch on May 15, putting pressure on the administration to cut ties with. Um, um, with Broad Spectrum, which runs Australia's detention centres on Nauru and Manus Island. The students were leaked the designs which they parried to better reflect the University of Newcastle's idiot business ties and struck them over the official branding. The rebranding focused on the word new, so SAD made posters saying, new abuses, new human rights violations, lose your ethics at UON. Social work student and um, member of SAD, Kira Dot, told Green Left Weekly how it was done. We rocked up at, at the, the internal launch and rock put up all our posters on billboards. We welcomed people in saying that this was a new design and asked them if they wanted to get their picture taken with the, our billboards. 
Um, Dot had also advertised her student profile as a social work student. Social justice and well-being of other people is very important to me. I really disagree with my student money going towards a company that contributes to the abuses of vulnerable um, humans fleeing their countries from war, persecution and violence. As someone who cares about other people, I can't sit back and be silent knowing it is my student money going to this um, company. And, of course, um, but um, one one of the... Actually, actually, this is one thing... The headline's a bit misleading because I don't think Newcastle has um, divested from broadcasting, but, you know, the article goes in, into more detail that, you know, this campaign is growing, putting, you know, very increased pressure... Um, Oh, wait, actually, the next day, um, UON uh, announced it would cut ties with board section. Students and staff have been campaigning for a few years for this university to cut ties with this private company, which is complicit in the abuse of asylum seekers and refugees. And, of course, this campaign has its beginnings back in 2014 when students learned that UON had contracted out some management and maintenance tasks to board spectrum in a eight, um, eight, $88 million deal. And of course, um, this is a quote from someone we're going to be interviewing in 10 and a few minutes. Um, Tim Brocane, other student activist, told Green Left Weekend when we came to saw the university links to offshore detention began to organise. Students and staff held a protest in early 2015. And of course, uh, the campaign really started after the release of the Guardian's Nauru files, which exposed thousands of cases of child abuse, sexual assault, beatings by guards, people being denied medical treatment and other crimes on Nauru. And of course, you know, in that context, there was also lots of different protests happening outside MPs' offices, and thousands were turning to bring them here rallies. And of course, um, there's all these been these different campus actions, including you know there was there was an action um, held at um, you know UNN Open Day where they held up you know a banner seven meters long and two point three meters high the entire time. The banner read UNN Stop Abusive Businesses. And of course, um, you know, there, there is going to, um, and we also took, there also was another, um, another thing, the campaign started to build up quite rapidly. And of course, there was this, um, as part of the campaign, they had this, they branded this Thousand Cuts campaign, which was aimed at brand brash in the university. And of course, you know, as students, we are responsible for our university and our university represents us. If it's involved in unethical practice, especially if it has links to com- company that has overseen, you know, murder, rape, the most heinous crimes we know of a society, it's clear that students must stand up. And of course, um, in light of, you know, this victory, SAD is organising a celebration party by organising for when the UN visits campus. Buchanan believes that this win has really empowering, but there's always more to be done. SAD is still active, and Dot said they have got a lot to do. We're going to continue so that our university never again employs or does business with a company that detains refugees. We're going to continue to demand that the administration reworks the university policies and ethical framework so that they will never ever employ or do business with companies involved in refugee and asylum detention. So, yep, that's the conclusion uh, of that record. For progressive people around the world, it's been a hard start to the year. Trump is rolling out his racist agenda, inspiring increased racial, religious and gender-based hatred across the globe. It really is time to rally together to fight for a better world. 
There is power in numbers and there is power in independent, community-run media. Join the swelling number of people fighting back by becoming a member of your radical activist radio station. Show us your love and subscribe to 3CR. Call us on 9419 83377 or pay online 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Alrighty, welcome back. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR and this morning we have got Tim Buchanan on the line from Newcastle. And Tim is the Newcastle Uni Students Association Enviro Officer or Enviro Convener and is also a Communications Officer for the Australian Student Environment Network. Welcome, Tim. Hey, how you doing? Good morning. Yeah, good. Uh, so, uh, you participated in a protest in Newcastle last Sunday organised by Greenpeace where a massive banner reading Combank's Coal Kills was unfurled on top of a coal stockpile. Uh, can you put us in the driver's seat and talk us through that protest? Um, well, the protest was um, aimed at Combank um, because they're the, the biggest funders of fossil fuel um, in Australia um, by far. Um, but the what the action looks like um, is that we, we arrived in the morning, um, we got over the fence, um, we dragged um, some very, very, very massive um, banners up a coal pile and unfurled them as um, a helicopter went over and got some shots. Um, and then a few of us occupied a Kramer Restacker, which are the big toothy-looking things that move the coal around. Um, and we did some live streaming um, and just talking about Combank and how all that sort of stuff works and the funding the funding regime of fossil fuels in Australia. I mean, that that was our that was our aim to talk about. That. Yeah, wicked. Yeah, and it was a massive banner. This is like eighty meters long or something. <clears throat> yeah, it was about seventy-five meters by thirty meters, um, which is definitely the biggest banner I've ever had to deal with. Um, shout out to everyone who was involved in the uh, making of that banner, but also the logistics of getting it up a coal pile and then managing to unfurl it in the correct way and there was we had to change a few things around on the fly so um the teamwork that was needed for that was um pretty high order um and was a lot of people who hadn't worked together before um so shout outs to all the people that were on top of that coal pile yeah well and um yeah pretty sophisticated uh activism there were, uh, Greenpeace were the lead organisers of that protest. Were there other groups or people from other environmental and community organisations involved in making that happen? Yeah, I mean, I guess um, Greenpeace were the main organisers, but the local group Climate Justice Uprising Newcastle um, was pretty much very involved and the um, University of Newcastle Enviro Collective I guess those three groups came together um, where GEP um, maybe did the high order stuff, but um, opened it up to what local groups wanted to do and let it, like, um, it got shaped a bit um, in that way. So that's good. That's a sort of a new direction, direction for Greenpeace. Um, so we're happy to see where Greenpeace go in the future. Um, I think they're being a lot more inclusive and doing a lot more actions than they have done in the last decade. So... Um, it was a consultative process, and that's nice to see. Yeah, excellent. 
Uh, now, what do you reckon of the, the strengths and also potentially the limitations of pressuring the banks around coal investment? Um, I think the strengths, first off, are it's acceptable. It's, um, it's a large support foundation. Like, um, usually um, blockading um, is the way to go. Um, you're actually out of mine site. You're stopping construction, stopping coal getting from A to B, stopping washeries. Um, but sometimes those things, those infrastructures are, are huge and it takes a lot of, um, it takes a lot of work um, to, to actually physically stop coal being moved around and earth being dug out of the ground and country being destroyed. So the advantage of tackling the banks is that it can be distributed. And I think we've seen this distributed action with Westpac. Um, they were pressured quite hard on Adani and they, they basically said they're not going to fund any new coal mines in any new coal basin. So they will probably still continue to fund coal mines in the Hunter, because there's already coal mines there, but they've actually come out with a statement and said they're not going to, they're not going to be involved in any new coal basin. So that essentially rules out um, mm. new coal mines, which is awesome. Um, Combank, not so much. Um, that they, they have no real climate policy. Um, so the advantage there is we're ripping the money out of the guts of the industry or trying to. The disadvantage is, um, I guess, it's a sort of a slightly inside track, not not particularly, but it's not... Um, the power is still um, basically driven to Combank to make the right decision. I mean, community pressure, but we're still relying on Combank to, to make that correct decision. Um, and I guess in a, in a capital framework... Um, you could critique that quite heavily. It's what we have access to now, and if the banks do budge, that would be great. Mm. Um, but they're not doing it of their own volition. You know, um, I think that's the issue with the banks. They're not going to. They're not. They're not ethical, even though they say they are. They do things for their own profit line. Mm. Um, so that's what we're damaging. They're not. They're not doing it because they're great. They're a great institution. Mm. Yeah, that's. Um, that. Um, yeah, just one kind of comment I want to make that um, you probably want to respond to is um, one of the things I think with um, these divestment campaigns, especially um, with the um, – it was quite apparent to me when Westpac um, recently kind of made it clear that they would divest from giving any money to – um, you know, the Adani coal mine. But of course, on a radio interview, you know, one of the CEO or someone high up in Westpac, you know, basically said, oh, well, we're not ruling out, you know, you know, funding other coal mines in the future. Um, and you know, um, what, I guess one of the, the limit, one of the things I think the campaign has, has to go towards is actually trying to pressure the bank to, you know, to make a commitment that will, they will not give any money to coal mines whatsoever. And um, in terms of the Dani campaign, for example, the the problem with um, its focus is being focused on stopping, you know, the banks giving money to the Adani coal mine, but not actually raising that question that you know, no coal should be, you know, no coal mines should be given money to by any of these major banks. Absolutely, and that's why the focus of this was not not Adani at all. Mm. Um, we wanted to focus on the fact that Combank is like the biggest financial pillar, um, has given um, close to $4 billion um, to the coal uh, fossil fuel industry um, since signing of the Paris Agreement alone. Um, they uh, put more money into coal more than the two, the second and third banks combined. Um, so that's, that's the pressure is like, hey, you 
you they they are the bedrock, basically, for Australia's coal industry. They invest massively and enable the industry to continue and to continue to expand. So that's why we focus broader, like a, a broader message. Um, hmm. But as as you said, you know, um, it's it's relying on the banks to make some sort of like ethical sort of uh, decision. Um, and we know they're not particularly deep down ethical institutions. So um, it's a concern, but I guess this is sort of like being involved in reformist-style actions is not, not a terrible thing. Um, and this may be a step towards uh, banks not funding any new coal mines, um, but we'll, we'll have to see what the future holds. Um, I think, I think a, you know, diversity of tactics is, is a good way to look at it. I'll be involved in um, divestment campaigns, but I'll also be involved in um, harder campaigns as well. Yeah. Now, what's what's your vision, Tim, for Newcastle and the Hunter, and, and I guess Australia more generally over the next decade? Do you think community action can really drive a transition away from coal, and and what would that look like? Um. Yeah. I mean, I really do think community action can drive us away from abusive extraction industries. Um, we've seen some massive wins in the last um, few years. Um, we've had the Bentley wins um, and the massive campaign against coal seam gas. We're quite lucky in Australia that um, we're a little bit behind America um, and we, we have all this evidence of the devastating effect of coal seam gas, not only on the land. Um, unfortunately, it's a lot more. It sells a lot more when the human health impact is the is is quite apparent. Um, and so that's what happened with CSG. Like people, it gets in communities, people become sick. So we've had massive wins against coal seam gas. Coal seam gas doesn't really have much of a social life in mm. Australia, um, and it's struggling, um, and it's, it's popping up here and there, and we still need help to definitely, um, you know, kill that beast. Um, but we've seen wins there. I think we're seeing community pressure really be successful with distributed bank action. Um, I'm excited to see how this mode works, because the other, like, the different modes of hey, we need to get to uh, bush blockade, um, which is fine and good. Um, it's very taxing on people. And um, maybe, like, we need to get 10,000 people in the street. Those things are very hard, but the distributed actions, where, where there might be 10,000 people taking action, but, you know, knitting nanas are occupying an ATM in Goxford. Um, I'm excited by this new mode of, like, very autonomous um, community action that people have been taking. So I think there, there's, there's great potential. Um, I don't know if I'm, if I'm in a bubble, but I see it growing quite rapidly. Um, that's how I perceive it. Mm. Um, and the future to me looks like in the Hunter is like we think, I think we need to engage a lot more with, with unions and workers. It's not something that um, the environment movement does very well. It's something that we're very critical of ourselves at the moment. Mm. Um, people and people who are trying to, you know, stop climate change in the Hunter really need to communicate to working class communities what the solutions are. We are looking at, like, just transition models. Um, we are trying to um, really communicate the evidence. Like, there's, there's vast, um, vast quantities of evidence and reporting done on how actually a just transitions model could work in the Hunter. Mm. Um, um, you just, if you want to Google Just Transitions Hunter, there's like a, a report, I think it's like a, a couple of hundred pages, um, talking about how, you know, solar farms, they often do need a lot of, quite a lot of land. Um, they're quite big, but we have all these like 
really big holes in the ground. We have quite a lot of dead land in the Hunter due to mining, and those, that, that sort of land could be reclaimed for renewables quite easily. And it would um, require, you know, lots of um, construction and a lot of IT work, all those sort of jobs that are, that are in mining are absolutely in a renewable sector. Mm. Um, so it's interesting to think about that, but when we don't communicate it too well and we need to start focusing on that. And I think as young people, young environmentalists are really sort of getting quite, quite involved in union. Yeah, well, getting involved in union movements and trying to make those connections again. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's wicked. Um, and how are things on campus at the moment? Because it looks like there's been a bit of a resurgence in on-campus campaigning. Uh, I know I've saw on social media uh, a protest at the Commonwealth Bank branch on campus looking again at this question of their investments in coal and we just heard uh, before we got you on the line about the successful campaign to uh, force you on University of Newcastle to cut ties with uh, Broad Spectrum which is involved in running the um, the refugee gulags. Yes, absolutely. Um, so there has been, definitely has been a research. Um, students on at the University of Newcastle through groups like Students Against Detention and the Enviro Collective have just been stepping up massively. Um, we occupied um, the Commonwealth Bank or out the front of it, we did like a soft block, you know, sitting down, um, sort of blocking the bank. Um, you know, if people really wanted to enter, we weren't, we weren't, it wasn't like a hard block. Um, mm. But they, but basically they did the work for us because they just shut, shut the bank for about three hours. So, <laughs> um, that was great, um, and it sort of there's a lot of people who have never experienced direct action, um, sort of protesting, and we're trying to really expand what the idea of direct action is on campus as well. Um, so we we obviously do like bank blockades and stuff like that, but also we run food not bombs in town. We're feeding people. Um, we're doing community gardening, um, like expanding the idea of what direct action is. It's not just protesting; it's actually building structures um, that are sustainable and non-institutionalised um, and community-run. So that sort of stuff has been going pretty well. Um, and the broad-spectrum thing is amazing. I don't really mm. know. Like, having a win is really weird <laughs> sometimes. Um, yeah, so, I mean, uh, in, in a good Newcastle had an $88 million contract with um, broad-spectrum. Mm. As you said, the same company that run Neuron Manus, um, and they terminated that contract three years early. And we've been, we've been like, slamming them hard solidly for a year, mm. and the campaign grew maybe sort of six months before that. Um, oh, so. Congratulations. That's really uh, great work from uh, Students Against Detention. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm really, really proud of the crew uh, who put in a lot of work to it. So, yeah. Um, but we've got some more stuff coming up in Newcastle, like the Students of Sustainability Conference and all that sort of stuff. Um, do you want me to have a chat about that? Yeah, for sure. Tell us a bit about SOS. Um, so SOS is Australia's longest running and sort of largest um, grassroots, I hate to use the activist word, but activist sort of space. Um, it's totally about accessibility and knowledge sharing that's happening in Newcastle um, this year from the 30th of June um, till uh, the 5th of July. Um, it looks like five days of eight different continuous streams going on at the same time of skill sharing and learning about campaigns. Um, the focus has shifted over from the last decade in, and I'll just use my own terminology from like mm. shifted from crystal hippie to now like a real push for intersectionality um, without just using that as a buzzword, but like, you know, we're, we're having a whole day focused on just transitions. We're getting union heads 
um, from all around the country to talk to us um, about what that looks like. Um, you know, we're flying in First Nations elders from all across the country and their countries to talk about the fights on their land so we can um, listen to them, see what they want us to do in their campaigns. That might just be sharing the story or whatever. Um, it's all about getting people who are on the front line um, to come and, and talk to us in Newcastle. And also, like, the 101s, like, you know, what is direct action, what's anarchism 101, feminism 101, capitalism 101, all that sort of stuff. So there's sort of, like, multiple levels um, of experience. Everyone's mm. welcome. It's not just for students. Um, that's the common misconception. And we are really trying to, in Newcastle this year, trying to get away from the middle-class um, white student bubble because Newcastle is, you know, pretty working class. So we're having it at a TAFE. This year, there's a lot of high school students coming and there's a lot of, um, you know, people who are older coming as well. So we're really putting that effort into, like, broadening the base and everyone's a student of sustainability if they want to be. Um, also, just like to mention that we have a no borders, no barriers policy on ticket prices. Um, so if you can afford 50 cents for your ticket, just email us and tell us that and that's what your ticket cost will be. So Yeah, cool. Yeah. Very nice. All right. Well, uh, that sounds very exciting. Looks like you've got a really good, uh, a good conscious approach to, as you say, building a broadly based SOS and involving, yeah, different groups that are all kind of tangentially related to environmental struggles. So, top stuff. Hopefully, yeah. there's a bunch of Melbourne people coming up your way. I think there will be. And um, I just mentioned SOS is also like a broad social justice. It's not just environmentalism. Where there yeah. is like there, everything's interrelated. So. Um, yeah, come along. Um, it should be pretty good. Um, and we're trying to do good things, but also we're very open to critique. And that's very important. So yeah, for sure. if someone has a critique of SOS, um, let us know and we'll take that on board. For sure. Bit of a constructive discussion. All right. Thanks heaps for talking with us, Tim. And keep up the good works. Really uh, exciting as a former Nova Castrian watching all this uh, staunch action taking place up there. So rock on, sir. You, you. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, See ya. Talk to you again soon. Bye. Thank you. All righty. Uh, we have just been talking. Whoa. Hanging up the phone. We've just been talking with Tim Buchanan there, who is the Environment Officer at the Newcastle University Students Association and is also a Communications Officer with the Australian Students Environment Network, uh, and they are organising the annual Students of Sustainability Conference that's coming up in Newcastle. So, And as Tim said, if that's something that interests you, even if you're not specifically a uh, university student or whatever, head on up to Newey. There's lovely beaches. They're lovely for a walk even in winter. Uh, and, yeah, there's going to be some really fruitful discussions and scheming and strategizing from the soundings. Alrighty, I'm going to play a bit of an intro, uh, intro, a bit of an announcement, and then we'll get to the activist calendar for the week. You are on 3CR. You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday morning breakfast show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855am digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Green Left Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au. 
or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. All right. Uh, so, it's Friday morning. It's about 8 o'clock, <coughs> four minutes past eight, to be precise, and that means it is time for the activist calendar. Okay, Friday, June 2, tonight! We've got Ezekiel Ox and, uh, and his band, and they're gonna be playing at Cherry Bar. Uh, yeah, Zeke, filmmaker, actor, and political activist. Uh, you know he's good. You know he rocks the show. Uh, it's happening at 9 o'clock tonight, Cherry Bar, ACDC Lane, in the city. Uh, Monday, June 5 to Sunday, June 18, it is going to be Radio Son 2017, 3CR Radio for Change. The target to keep this thing kicking along is 220 large, 220K. That's what it takes to keep 3CR kicking, and we need you to chuck in to make it happen. So the current political climate in Australia and globally as we know, it's one of rising racist and pro-capitalist policies, but within this spreading conservatism, there are always people who are prepared to speak out, to organise, and to rise to the challenges of our times. 3CR began broadcasting in 1976, and in 2017, we're the home of progressive alternatives where you can hear our communities speak for themselves, articulating their own struggles and solutions. Radio for Change aims to capture the global mood of resistance, and during our annual Radiothon fundraiser, we ask all our supporters to donate so we can stay radical and stay independent. So donate now, right now. Get on the blower, 94198377. Chuck in and help keep this thing ticking, purring, kicking along. Alrighty, so it's Tuesday, June 13, uh, film screening, The Factory documentary brings the Maruti struggle alive through the stories of its arrested workers. Rahul Roy's 2015 film visits the unionisation dispute that rocks the automobile company's plant in Manasar, India, between 2011 and 2013. Runtime is 132 minutes, and that's at 6:30 uh, p.m. 20 bucks or 10 bucks concession. That's at Long Play, 318 St George's Road, Fitzroy North, and that's a fundraiser for Australia Asia Worker Links. Wednesday, June 14, uh, public meeting. Clive Hamilton on waking up to climate change. Author, public intellectual, and professor of public ethics, Clive Hamilton asks us to confront what it means to be human in a new geological epoch, the Anthropocene. Uh, that's at a quarter past six, uh, 35 bucks or 25 concession, and that's at the Clemenger Auditorium, National Gallery of Victoria, entry via North Court, that's at 180 St Kilda Road in the city, uh, and as I said, that's Wednesday, June 14, if you want to go check it out. Uncle Clive kicking some truth bombs about climate change and the dire situation we're in and how urgent it is to flip the uh, power balance and get the revolution happening, dare I say it. Uh, Friday, June 16th to Sunday, June 18th, 
film screening, Chakua. Uh, please tell us the time. A Manus Island detainee's mobile phone secretly reveals life behind bars in this disarmingly poetic and cinematic documentary. And that's at Acme at Federation Square in the city. Saturday, June 17, the Big Red Book Fair. At 1pm, Jeff Sparrow, author of No Way But This, will be speaking uh, on the life and music of Paul Robeson, including an audio showcase of some of his great songs. Uh, there's barbecue happening all day, kind of like Bunnings Sausage, but um, Big Red Book Fair Sausage. Um, will there be vegan sausages? I don't know. You're going to have to go there and check it out. That's 10 a.m. till 5 p.m. at Trades Hall, corner of Ligon in Victoria Street's Carlton South, on Saturday, June 17. Uh, Women's March to ban the bomb. Join us for a rally and a march against Australia's boycott of historic UN negotiations to outlaw nuclear weapons. 1 p.m. State Library at 328 Swanston Street in the city. Women led but inclusive all. So that's that's also on Saturday, June 17th. So maybe you can fit that in around your uh, big red book fair mission for the for the day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Green Left Weekly Comedy Debate, that's also on Saturday, June 17th. So what I'm seeing here is set aside Saturday, June 17th for a big day of activism. There's the Big Red Book Fair, the Women's March to Ban the Bomb, and then in the evening, the Green Left Weekly Comedy Debate. Fake news is better than real news. A sparkling night of progressive comedy with MC Rod Quantock, uh, Sean Bedlam, Pauline Fartson, Gabe Hogan, Shirley Hood, Kirsty Mack, and Morvan Smith. Uh, I was there last year, and will we again this year, and I can tell you, it does what it says it's going to do on the packet. It's a very funny night, very, very funny. Uh, the comedians do tend to stray off topic a bit, and that's all part of the story. That's all part of the vibe. That's all right. If you want to have a laugh with some of your fellow lefties, that's that's the place to be. Saturday evening, June 17th. Tickets are 50 bucks solidarity, 30 bucks regular, 22 bucks low waged, 15 dollars concession, uh, and bookings. Uh, yeah, trybooking.com forward slash q a e n. Yeah. All right. Tuesday, June 20, World Refugee Day protests. Bring them here. Sack Dutton. We'll call on the government to close the camps, bring the asylum seekers on Manus and Nauru to Australia. Sack Peter Dutton, Immigration Minister, for his vicious lies surrounding the Good Friday shooting on Manus Island. And uh, we'll be speaking up for a society that respects the rights of all people, including people seeking asylum and standing against racist scapegoating. 6pm, State Library, 328 Swanston Street in the city, and that's hosted by RAC, the Refugee Action Collective. Uh, Sunday, June 25, no pride in hate, counter the far right. Once again, the right-wing bigots of the True Blue crew have called on all their fellow racist, homophobes and assorted fascists uh, to attend a hate-filled rally in the centre of Melbourne. 
Spurred on by the victory of Trump, the rise of the global right and the local media's racist law and order campaign, the thugs of the Trubu Clu will be hitting our streets to target people of colour. Uh, LGBTI people, community activists and the very concept of diversity, which they consider equivalent to white genocide. Ah, what a bunch of feeble-minded goons. Uh, our strength is in our diversity and numbers. So 11am Parliament, Spring Street in the city, organised by No Room for Racism and the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. So Sunday, June 25, uh, be sure to get along and uh, tell the neo-Nazis that they are not welcome on our streets and they can go away. Uh, Friday, June 30 to Saturday, July 1, uh, conference, the Rojava Revolution in Northern Syria, an experiment in radical democracy, feminism and ecology. For six years, Syria has been engulfed in a terrible war. The original democratic revolt against the Assad regime has given way to a brutal multi-sided conflict, but in the midst of this carnage, under threat on all sides, the freedom struggle in Rojava is a shining beacon of hope. Initially a struggle for Kurdish self-determination, the liberation forces have established the democratic federal system of northern Syria as a model for a a multi-ethnic, federal and socially just Syria. This is a conference to inform, discuss and build solidarity. (coughs) Pardon me. Got a bit of a dusty throat. Uh, so yeah, the, the Rojava revolution, that, that conference is happening at Vic Uni City Campus, 300 Flinders Street City, on, yeah, Friday, June 30 and Saturday, July 1. And for more information, hop on your Googles or your social medias and type in Australians for Kurdistan. And you'll be able to find out some more there. Radio, you're listening to 3CR. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate with Rod Quantock is on again. Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall. MC extraordinaire Rod Quantock will host two teams of comedians debating whether fake news is real news. Comedians include Sean Bedlam, Gabe Hogan, Shirley Hood, Kirsty Mack, Morven Smith and Pauline Fartson Hellchild. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate. Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall. Corner Sydney Road and Dawson Street, Brunswick. Doors open at 6.30pm. For bookings, go to trybooking.com forward slash Q-A-E-N or call 9639 8622. That's 9639 
8622, a 3CR supporter. Alrighty, uh, welcome back. This is 3CR, Green Left Radio, it's Friday morning, and we've got Martina Macy from Friends of Public Housing on the line. Welcome, Martina. Oh, thank you. Good morning to you too. Good morning. Uh, so, Martina, um, can you tell us a bit about what's happening at the moment where the state government is taking public housing and basically privatising it and turning it into social housing, in inverted commas? What they're doing is, social housing is a term to cover the government's transference of public housing to the community housing providers. And community housing is, as the Community Housing Federation of Victoria states, individual businesses with their own policies. They are not government, they are businesses. The state government at the moment, what they are doing is under the guise of rebuilding, they are selling off the land and building 10% in inverted commas extra public housing or social housing and of course stating that the tenants will be able, have the right to return. Now that is 99% lies because... Social housing, as I said, is a way of them transferring it over to the private sector and the tenants not necessarily will be able to return with Kensington, the Kensington flats. uh, Most of them were not able to return to the flats when they were rejuvenated and that is a shame because people, they shouldn't, it shouldn't be done. Hmm. The Government need to not sell off the land, but they need to rebuild themselves. They've been given community housing over a hundred million in funding to build themselves. But the thing is, is when these rebuilds happen on land, on government land, it's actually the state government who are paying for the building of the community housing units because it's the Community Housing Federation have, of Victoria have admitted that they cannot expand without government funding. So the only way they can, can and are building is with funding that Martin, the state government are giving to them out of the public housing budget to build. Hmm. So why wouldn't you just keep them as straight up public housing if that's who's paying for it? Because it's too, it's easier to do it this way. The government then do not have the responsibility of dealing with tenants. The, they don't have to deal with the maintenance. All they do is throw money at the community housing groups who will, who then have to deal with the tenants on the day to day basis. From first hand experience of a community housing provider, they are not very nice people. They, um, one thing I've found is that the Residential Tenancy Act in Victoria, there are quite big sections of it that do not apply to community housing tenants. The Director of Housing is mentioned in the Residential Tenancy Act, but community housing tenants are not covered by big sections of it. And when I discuss this with the people who are actually updating the Residential Tenancy Act, 
they said to speak to the Mr. Foley. Mr. Foley is the person who is the person who's transferring property over to community housing providers. I have attempted to contact him. I have given my evidence to him in relation to community housing providers, and I've had no response. Hmm. He does not care. At the end of the day, all it is is pushing the most vulnerable over to community housing providers that um, can't always stand up for themselves. They are afraid to stand up against these community housing providers for fear of being made homeless. I myself have almost been made homeless by my community housing provider twice. But if I had not lowered myself to their level, I would be on the streets, living on the streets now. Mm. Yeah, it's like a reproduction of the same sort of problem that people have in, in private tenancy. But as you say, in some cases with less rights. And what's it like in public housing? Is that is that the same there where people have less rights? Or have you... No, no. Um, housing Commission tenants are protected in the fact that they have... If you look at the Residential Tenancy Act, they are mentioned as in Director of Housing. Hmm. That's how they've been inserted into the, the Residential Tenancy Act. Because the Residency Tenancy Act has not been updated and the fact that community housing tenants don't will never pay 100% of the market value of the property, they are not covered by certain sections of the Residential Tenancy Act. Yeah. So there is a loss of rights from uh, being a public, from a, if you are a public housing tenant and you're transferred to the community housing and that's a big deal hmm. because at least you do have 99.9% of the rights that the private paying public do have hmm. whereas with community housing tenants you only have 60 or 70% of the rights under the Residential Tenancy Act and when I brought that up with the people who are doing the fairer, safer renter they were actually surprised at the sections I was able to pull out and say, well, these are the differences that um, that do you know that do not cover community housing tenants, and the community housing groups are using those laws against tenants. So, being a public housing tenant is a lot safer than being a community housing tenant. You've also got um, a guarantee of a roof over your head with public housing. With community housing, you don't have that. It's a day-to-day thing of, will they serve uh, me a 120-day notice today? And it's been like that for me for years, which is why I'm fighting for public housing, because we all need a safe place to live live and to to have as a safety net. Yeah, that security of tenure is, is so important. It is. And do you know what sort of percentage or what proportion of the public housing stock that the Andrews government is looking at turning over to community housing? At the moment, on the, the, the figures that were released just recently to the Estimate Committee, it's 4,000, over 4,000 properties that they are transferring management over to community housing groups. Now, there is a difference between management and titles. 
when it's management, community housing groups have to abide by the same um, same right. same as other community uh, public housing tenants have as you know, under the, if they were still managed by public housing. Hmm. But if the titles are transferred, then it's on, on for all. Hmm. So there is a difference, and that's why they're demanding the titles, because that gives them free reign to pick and choose whether they want that tenant to stay. And the thing is, is that tenants do not understand the difference between the two groups. They believe that one, they are one and the same, and that's because the government want people to believe they are the same when they're not. In actual fact, they're not. Hmm. And what's the like? You've you've spoken about this hundred million dollars that's being invested in building new housing, which is going to be basically instantly privatised or given to these social um, or community housing groups. What's How does investment in building new public housing at the moment or over the last 10 years, how does that compare with, say, back in the 60s or 70s when you had a lot more? Well, when you look back at the 60s and 70s, they were building a, a lot of uh, public housing you look at what they did build. Most of the high-rises were built in the 60s and 70s. Mm. Park Towers was built in 67 and 68, which was the second last high-rise to be built, and that being the highest one. They built a, another high-rise in 1972. They have, um, and in comparison to now, public housing have built minimally, if at all, since then, but they did do a lot of building then and they acquired in the land that Mr Foley is selling was land that was acquired under the 1935 Slum Reclamation Act where the houses on those properties were slums and people were put the poor working people and poor people were paying for these properties. And what the government did was they came in, used the Slum Reclamation Act to purchase this land, and then they built public housing on it. So that's how they acquired all these land, pockets of land throughout the state. Yeah, right. And then they built on them. And that's how they obtained Park Towers, that's how they obtained Dorcas Street, um, Collingwood Flats, Kensington Flats, all through the state. Hmm. Yeah, right. Um, now, we're getting a little bit short on time. How can people sort of support our Friends of Public Housing, support the campaign to keep public housing public? Well, what we all need to do is to first join Friends of Public Housing. That's the first step. Um, the lady that runs it, Fiona, is... Oh, fabulous lady who knows what she's talking about mm. and we need to all continue going to marches we need to contact our local members of parliament and well the first stop is to contact friends of of public housing so that we all can rally together and write letters to our local members go to marches we really need all the support that we can get to force the issue in attempt to at least get a Senate inquiry because why, um, once these lands are sold, 
they're gone for good. And no mm. government in the future will ever be able to replace any of these properties. All you've got to do is look at London, um, look at America, look at Canada, and look what has happened since they handed over their own public housing to, to these community housing groups. Mm. It's a hard and that's the to, road, uh, road we're heading down. Yeah. All right. Well, um, yeah, thanks heaps for talking with us this morning. And, uh, yeah, it's an important campaign to, as you say, stop us uh, going down that one-way street and losing that uh, that land and that, that housing stock for good. Because mm. so. once it's gone, it's irreplaceable. And where will people be able to live? There will be nowhere for people to have a, a cushion to fall on when they really need it. Mm. I mean, how many of our politicians actually start grew up in in public housing? Mm. Quite a lot of the leaders of today in the state of Victoria actually grew up in public housing. They're public and proud, as the saying is out there. Mm. My father grew up in public housing. For sure. We're going to keep it that way. All right. Yes, well, um, yes, thank you. Yeah, thanks each for talking with us, Martina, and uh, yeah, keep up the good work. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me. Cheers. All right. Cheers. Catch you soon. Thank you. All right. That's us. Stick around for uh, Beyond Zero Emissions. Uh, coming up next, you're on 3CR. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now?